So if you're listening to this, when it comes out, it's December, and that's the time of year when it seems like regardless of whether you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or anything else or nothing at all, our schedules just get really busy. Mm -hmm. Yep. I know we can't see each other right now, but I can feel your head slowly nodding, and I can actually see Sarah's head slowly nodding. Totally nodding. And lots of times this busyness centers around food, be it potluck gatherings at work, holiday parties, big family dinners, or even coffee and treats with friends, because food brings us together as human beings better than almost anything else. It's true. But what happens when the foods that you have are scoffed at by the people around you? How does it feel to be made to be different from the other Americans around you based on your cultural heritage? You know, how do you get kids to try new flavors, learn real history. And let's be honest, at this stage in the melting pot game, what makes something American anyway? We're here to talk about all that and more with an award-winning veteran journalist, Michelle Lee, who also created the Very Asian Foundation after a shocking now viral viewer comment in response to her comment about dumplings on television. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your very Asian, biracial, Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Would you please introduce yourself? Oh, sure. Well, thanks for having me. My name is Michelle Lee, and I am a journalist, a traditional broadcast journalist, and have been doing that for 20 years this year, which is kind of crazy. And I'm currently in St. Louis, but have been in Seattle and Madison, Wisconsin and Wilmington, North Carolina and Springfield, Missouri, and then Wilmington, North Carolina again. So um, have been on both coasts and the upper Midwest and the South and now the middle of the country, (laughs) but also now the founder of the Very Asian Foundation, which has been really interesting. (laughs) I cannot wait to talk about that because I know people can go to your Twitter account to see it. Oh, yeah. But can you please tell us the origin story behind the Very Asian Foundation? Because I mean, I was watching that, that clip of the TV viewer who called in and left that voicemail about your dumpling comment. Like, oh, my gosh, please. Let's discuss. (laughs) Well, did you see it when it went viral? Were you aware of it when it went viral or just recently? No, but I'm not on Twitter. So and I'm not on that part of social media. I did. But yeah, because I used to manage our podcast Twitter account, except now we're off Twitter. But yes, so I remember that. So I'm so curious. Tell us the whole thing. (laughs) I mean, Twitter has become, oh, my gosh, such an interesting space these days. I kind of say like if I didn't have a news job, I would not be on social media at all. But I feel like I'm always like, what's happening on Instagram? What's happening? It used to be Facebook, you know, but oh my gosh. So it's interesting because I had been working in Seattle the last five years. And then we came home to Missouri because my husband grew up in St. Louis. I grew up in Kansas City. And the pandemic really put a wrench in like a lot of our plans. We would have eventually moved back to the Midwest, I think, because we had a son. Our son's now four, but we thought we, you know, would stay on the West Coast as long as we could. But the pandemic really changed things for us in the rule of threes. So my job changed because the pandemic shut down my show. So I stopped anchoring my show and um, it got put on hiatus. And then my daycare shut down indefinitely. And my son was one years old. So I was working overnight and then turning into a mom at like 10 a.m. and then being up with my son all day. And that's really exhausting. 
Not sustainable. And we did it for a year, which is actually kind of crazy. But then the third thing that happened was that my mom died. And that was really unexpected. In fact, I remember having a conversation with the nurse and I said, do I need to fly home? And the nurse, I'm sure feels like they learned a lesson because I can't even imagine the nurse was like, no, honey, she's going to be just fine. So don't worry about coming home. And literally 12 hours later, I called back and talked to another nurse. And the nurse was like, oh, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your mom passed away two hours ago. And so it was like, I'm sorry, what? And that was election day. So that was um, the presidential election when she passed away. And it was kind of crazy because I just thought like, well, what are we doing out here? Like, we have no childcare. I have no mom. Like, I have no job that I love. <laughs> I mean, I love my job, like the people, but I was doing a totally different thing than what I had signed my contract to do. So I was like, well, what is working out here? And we left and came back to Missouri. And so I took whatever job that I could. I transferred, but like you still have to have an opening with news. And so I was working nights and weekends, which I hadn't done in a long time. I was general assignment reporting, which I hadn't done in a like a 15 year kind of thing. And so but like we were happy to be home and give help, <laughs> you know, like to be able to like call my in-laws and be like, hey, can you watch JJ for a second? It'd be great. And so that was really helpful. And plus, I could help my dad. So being the low man on the totem pole, I had to work New Year's Day. And that was like, I mean, I'm glad I did because it changed my life. But at the time, I was like, you know, I literally did not want to work on a holiday. I was wearing sweats and like this horrible outfit. Had I known I was going to go viral in it, I would have probably dressed a little bit better. But, um, you know, so I just was working on New Year's and there was a throwaway story. And I and no one actually in management, news management would appreciate me saying it was a throwaway story. But it was like, what do Americans eat on New Year's Day and why? And we didn't even have any video for it. It was like a full screen. And it was like, you know, our producer was like a producer in residence, which basically is like one step, you know, more than like an intern. So they're in a program to like learn how to produce. So it just wasn't like a produced up segment or anything. It was like a full screen with like words. And it was like, you know, Americans eat greens for wealth, pork for progress, you know, cornbread for coins. And it just so happened that I was like looking at my Instagram feed and all of my friends from St. Louis and Seattle were eating duck gook. (laughs) So I was like, I just said, and I actually asked my producer if I could just ad lib a line. And it wasn't because I wanted permission to ad lib. It was because I didn't want her to advance to like the next horrific story that was going on, you know, like the next crime story. I just wanted to like give some some breathing room. And so I said, can I just add a line here? And she said, sure. So I said, and I had dumpling soup because that's what a lot of Korean people do. That's it. That was it. It was 25 seconds. And so it was kind of interesting because right away we had a couple people respond like, oh, hey, my wife was born in Korea and our daughter's making that soup for the very first time. And then I had another response on Twitter that was like, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because young people see that. It's, that's incredible. And so I thought, wow, who's first of all, thank you for watching the news on New Year's Day. And second of all, thank you for taking the time to write in something positive. Nobody ever does that. And then about a uh, maybe a couple of hours later, our a voicemail came in through our email system, and it was from a woman who said that I was very Asian. But it went beyond that. It was like, hey, I was watching the news earlier, and your Asian anchor said 
something about what Asian people eat. I kind of take offense to that because I feel like she needed to talk about what white people ate because if white people could talk about what they ate, they would be fired. And she was just being very Asian. She needs to keep her Korean tour. So, I mean, it just kind of went on and on. And so I was so shocked by it, but I ended up sharing it. And I should say, by far, it is not the worst thing that anyone has ever said to me, but I was just in a mood to share it. And so I shared a video of me listening to it, and that went viral. And so then that smells like a bunch of different things in my life that I can't believe that we're like approaching a year because it feels like a blink of an eye. It was crazy. But yeah, that's the sum of it. And then like two days later, I did a commentary and I called it a gift because so many people shared like really great things about hashtag very Asian. We raised tens of thousands of dollars for an organization that we love because we made very Asian shirts and sold them all around the world, which is crazy. And yeah, then I went on the Ellen show and then Ellen gave me $15,000. And then we said, well, let's meet the moment by starting the Very Asian Foundation. And then we've literally been going a thousand miles since. <laughs> so we've, you know, built a board. We have a 501c3. We've been doing programming. We launched a national uh, awareness campaign. There's just a lot of things that we've been doing, but doing it in the way that we think is, um, I guess, like speaks to us and who we are as people and and also who we are as like careers, because I'm a journalist. So I always say I'm a journalist for everybody. But I mean, it's pretty obvious that being Asian has had a big mark on my career, good and bad. <laughs> so sorry, I I think I talked for like 20 minutes straight there. Sorry. <laughs> no, I love it because, well, first of all, thank you for sharing all of that, because I think that that's important to understand, right, sort of the trajectory. And I'm so sorry about your mother, right, passing away and the way in which that happened, especially for you. And I both hate and love the origin story behind the Very Asian Foundation, because, you know, as you're talking about the New Year's slide, right, and trying to talk about your own New Year's tradition, and I think about the traditions in my family, which are not only Southern and Black, Southern and White, Japanese, you know, but it's so many of what I consider to be American traditions as well, right? Because did you know, I didn't know people had cornbread or pork or I was like, really? They do that? I had no idea. <laughs> okay. Did that. <laughs> Knew that. But I think that's also because of the multiple, you know, different identities, right? That are in our families and that make up American culture, right? And so when the woman who called in, who's saying, you know, this when I hear you say American, I think it should be white American, right? This is such a an important point and something that Sarah and I keep trying to unpack on this show, right? Like, <laughs> what do we mean when we say American? We don't just mean white people. And so can we discuss this for a moment? Like, how do we explain to white people, right? That line between, yes, American people of Asian descent are actually just as American as white people are, while also being clear that we have cultural traditions that are fantastic, right? Like food and ritual celebrations that we have in our lives, whether that's Korean in your case or Japanese in ours, because New Year's is huge in Japan as well. Mm -hmm. Or one of the, you know, the 48 countries and three territories that make up what we call, you know, broadly Asian. How do we convey that? I mean, to me, it seems like there are so many solutions, but the basic thing is like, first of all, white people, if you have, to me, it's like, 
I look at my my in-laws, for example, they are very proudly Polish. So they understand that aspect of their lives, right? And it's not like they're suddenly like, oh, I'm not American because I'm Polish. I mean, and also I should say, because my husband's, you know, Polish, Dutch, you know, American, we, when we celebrate anything that's like Polish, that's also work for us too, because neither of us know anything about Polish culture, right? So it's not like he like suddenly is like, oh, I'm Polish, so I know everything about Polish. No one expects him to know that. So we have to learn as well, you know? And so I think that like anyone who's also white understands that or has a European background, of course they understand it. Like they have to learn it. I remember my grandma at the end of her life, she was just really interested in her genealogy. So she was like spending so much time and she's a white woman, you know, was trying to understand like where she came from and you know everyone has origin questions just like asian folks you know and so it just sucks because you know we might have a different appearance or we might present a different way so someone automatically says oh foreign you know and we hear the same conversations over and over again like you know you speak really great english or explain where you're from, know where you're really from. You know, it just goes on and on and on. But even like American traditions, going back to the cornbread thing, I never grew up eating any of those things for New Year's tradition. I've never had a New Year's tradition in America. Granted, when we lived in the South, when we lived in North Carolina, we did do a lot of greens and cornbread and stuff like that. But that was a little different. It was still like just taking on somebody else, the Southern custom or something, you know, like hopping john's and things like that but growing up in missouri we didn't have anything we like set off firework works every now and then i mean that was like the only thing that we did so i don't know it's really hard to unpack you know what people's other people's crap that you have to absorb because people don't have their own selves figure it out you know that's a really interesting point and i feel like it's one of those things where people think that their tradition whatever they do is normal and i'm heavily air quoting normal but because asian people are made to feel like other than we're able to very closely understand that like, oh, chopstick eating foods. Okay. Maybe that is from Asian descent. That makes sense. Right. Whereas people aren't paying attention to it, maybe because white people aren't pushed on their lineage, on their belonging, on their heritage, as much as Asian people are almost from the beginning. I mean, what you just said about Asian folks being asked where they're from, my husband, who's Canadian and a white guy, was telling someone when we got together, like, yeah, my wife is biracial. She's Japanese and white. Oh, you know, she grew up in New York and the person they were talking to was, does she speak good English? And he's like, what part of she grew up in New York? Do you not understand? Like, so he even saw it firsthand, what we can get to our faces, you know, but going back to the food thing, because I also grew up under my Japanese mom's roof, right? She's a Japanese immigrant. She would spend days preparing the feast. And that was what I knew to be traditional New Year's. Cause I, and I knew it was my Japanese mom because she did the Japanese food and that sort of stuff. But I have to say, you talked about the Very Asian Foundation, but we also were lucky enough to see a copy of the Very Asian Guide to Korean Food, the book that you produced out of that. And it brought me right back to my days living in New York. I grew up in the suburbs there and eating in Koreatown, going to Flushing. My closest friends growing up actually were Korean and I loved eating at their houses. So Korean food is a very close like cultural thing, growing up thing for me too. 
And for me, because I grew up in Los Angeles, so I grew up spending a lot of time in K-Town in L.A. I mean, a lot. OK, a lot. And also lived within walking distance of Koreatown in New York during law school. So that was like automatically my go to place. So, A, I miss that so much. And B, like reading, you know, the very Asian guide to Korean food. I was like, yes, give me all of it. <laughs> like all of it. Oh, right my now. gosh. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, that's so cool. Of course. Well, and I just made my girlfriend who I'm still in touch with is Korean. And, and I was doing the gyoza, the Japanese dumpling recipe. But she's like, no, do the Korean recipe. So I have that. My kids were helping me make it last week. And so it's wonderful because I think food is one of those things that brings us from whatever culture and tradition you're from, it brings people together. In particular, I think it's huge in Asian cultures, right? Like so many of us joke, but like the idea of Asian moms using food as that love language, like your friends come over and it's instantly like, are you hungry? And they like, they serve you snacks. They care for us in that way. So can you talk right now, you know, about the rule, like the role that food plays in your life? You know, why is food so special? Do you know what's so interesting? So I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm an adoptee. So my parents are actually white. Like my mom is a white woman and my dad is a white guy. And to me, food was so important to learning Korean culture. As a kid, you know, I would go to Korean heritage camps and we would do, you know, the food and stuff. And I really just loved seeing other Korean kids with non-Korean parents. Because I've never actually, I very rarely in my life have I seen Korean kids get adopted by Korean parents, you know, or Asian parents. It happens, though. I mean, I know people, but mostly at these camps, it would be like white parents and Asian kids. And so I really connected on so many levels with Korean culture, with Korean looking kids, because we were all sharing this really a similar experience. And Food was is like the gateway to Korea, you know, or the gateway to culture instead of Korea feeling like a very scary or not scary, but just like far off, mysterious kind of place that I would never go to actually ended up becoming a very a place that I really wanted to visit and really wanted to learn more about people. Things became less intimidating. And then what it ended up leading me to was going to Korea and finding my birth family and then having a very close relationship with my birth mother and my birth father and my three full-blooded sisters. And so as an adoptee, like you also feel very intimidated by these foods because you've never... I mean, unless you are around them all the time, but I think a lot of people don't have access necessarily to the food. And so, I mean, I've met Korean adoptees who are in their 20s, you know, who've never had Korean food. And it's almost like the 40-year-old version. Like they feel so embarrassed that they've never had these foods. And so I want to have like, honestly, like a segment or something called like a safe plate, because I feel like, you know, everyone needs a safe plate. Like you will learn so much about culture through other people's foods. You will appreciate other people's culture through food. It breaks down so many barriers. And also it gives you confidence about the world we live in. So, I mean, you know, but sometimes it's hard to to make the ask on your own. Even when I go to Korean restaurants, sometimes I'm like, if I haven't said it out loud, sometimes I get nervous about my pronunciation. Like I might get found out that I'm not really a Korean speaker, you know, like all these things. So it can be also very scary and intimidating. But food is life, man. And like, who doesn't like a dumpling? There are dumplings in every single culture, whether it's a pierogi or a ravioli or, you know, or gyoza. Or a mandu. I mean, to me, it's like it just does so much for us and really centers who we are as people. 
Well, I so appreciate you also layering on the adoptee story, right? Because I think that takes the the importance of food, especially culturally and with regard to identity to a different level. And so, you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the time. So my father is a Japanese immigrant and there would be occasional times where he would pack my lunch in elementary school. And the stuff that I would pull out of my lunch, which was awesome in my mind, like the other kids in a largely white school would be like, what is that? Right. And they would talk about, you know, the smell or like, why does it look like that? Or, you know, and I thought I was having like a super fancy hot dog, for example, not at all a hot dog, but in my house it was right. So I've heard this so many times from adults, right, who have been made to feel different because of the food that they have brought. So and that really stems from that those first childhood memories, right? Being of uh, feeling like the other, right? Feeling like you're not fitting in. So how do you or how would you coach children on how to respond to to foods and people that seem different? Well, it is interesting that you say that because, you know, I think so many people do have those stinky lunchbox moments and we talk about those a lot. My son, for example, I just try to introduce him to a lot of Korean food and a lot of smells and tastes. And, you know, right now he's in a butter noodle phase. So sometimes that's hard, but he'll eat kimchi fried rice. I don't know if he'll eat kimchi straight up yet, you know, but I when we talk about food, he's four. So we try to be age appropriate with him. And I'm like, just try it. You don't have to like it. You don't have to eat it. But I want you to take a bite. And so he'll usually take a bite. He has at times said things about other foods like, oh, that's stinky. I say, no, we don't say that it's stinky. We say that, oh, that's interesting. And that's different. That's what I try to get him to say about food, because I just feel like that is such a pivotal core memory for so many people. And it's a moment of shame in so many ways, because you love the food, you love your parents who made the food for you. And then you go to school and people are like, that's disgusting. You know, we have to change those moments so that people go, oh, I'm not used to that. That's a little different, but that's cool. (laughs) You know, I mean, I even as an adult brought kimchi to the newsroom once and I got totally made fun of, you know, it was like I heated fish up in a microwave or something, you know, and I was like, come on, I am. This is just kimchi, guys. But, you know, it's hard to bring your full self to spaces, even at a very young age, because you're made to feel so different and so othered. And I think that's sad. I think that's why we need to really start those conversations super early, um, just so that we can not only have tolerance. I hate the word tolerance. We need to have acceptance, you know? So I try, I mean, it's okay for for my four-year-old to be like, oh, that's a different smell. Like I'm not used to that all the time, but I don't want him to ever yuck somebody's yum. And that's, you know, something that I'm always worried about, especially now wearing this label, very Asian. I don't want to have a kid running around (laughs) telling everyone their lunch stinks, (laughs) you know? So... I don't want my kid to yuck somebody else's yum. I think that's a beautiful way of saying it because I've said the same thing to my children about using the word interesting, regardless of what the background is, someone has prepared that food. And so if you sit there and you have your stinky face on or like, you're like, ew, I don't like, this is gross. That's a judgment call versus being like, for me, I'm not used to it or it doesn't agree with me. It might be good for someone else. And so to separate the language around that, I think is really powerful. And I remember Misasha, as you were telling that story about your lunchboxes, I read from the time my kids were little, there's this little Japanese picture, or it's a book called Yoko by Rosemary Wells. 
And it's this little, another furry animal, right? She shows up with this. I know Yoko. Yeah, that was, I mean, first of all, it's my name. It's actually my Japanese name is Yoko. So someone gifted it to us. And I was like, yeah, that's me. I'll take it. But the kids love it. My extended family reads it to their kids because it's about a kid who takes sushi to lunch and is ew and judged and all this sort of stuff. So that's a good resource for, I think, any kids. But it's interesting because my kids are now in middle school. And if I give them smell neutral, like I lately, apparently their friends in the lunchroom love that I make rice balls for them. It's literally like hot rice, salt made into a triangle with some like seaweed packed separately. And their friends all think it's the coolest thing ever. And I'm like, seriously, it's like the most benign like <laughs> stomach filler on the planet. But by middle school, there is this curiosity and this engagement for non-offensive, I would say, and I air quote that, like smelling foods. So it's interesting to watch this pattern of children as I see my kids grow older. But going back to this idea of just the media and that book, can you tell us about a time when representation of Korean culture or Korean food in media or, or like books, any other resources that was meaningful for you or for your child? Do you know what's so funny? So I know that there are some really great books out there. There's like Bibimbap. There's like No Kimchi for Me, even though the title is kind of off-putting. I was like, No Kimchi for Me, what? There's another book. I mean, there are new books that are coming out all the time. And so I think that that's really great. The funny thing is I never had those books as a kid. So like Bibimbap or No Kimchi for Me, I never had that. There's another book. I think it's by Erica Kim called Kimchi Kimchi Every Day. Now I'm just forgetting. I, I mean, I know the title because I actually own the book, but I'm like, now I'm like, you know, on the spot. So I'm forgetting, but it's a new book too. And I never had any of those books growing up. And I never bought those books for JJ um, just because I actually did not like the title No Kimchi for me. So I just didn't even want him to, to repeat it. So I didn't have those books, but I will say Karen Chan of Glue Books, who published, you know, this book that I wrote, she had a book called What's That? And it's a whole stinky lunch moment. And she is in LA and she changed gears, which I loved about, her. you know, she changed careers to write a book and to launch this publishing company. And it was all because of representation and lack thereof. And so she sent me the book when Very Asian went viral. And it was so amazing that I was actually reading this book to my son. And he thought he was the main character, which is a very um, powerful moment and also a kind of like a facepalm moment at the same time that the books that I had been buying my child, he couldn't really see himself as the main character. And I thought, well, he's only three, you know, so I mean, I only, you know, haven't had him on earth that long. But I just thought like how terrible that I have been buying him books that have been very representative in many ways, but none that he felt like he could be. So anyway, I reached out to Karen and I said, thank you so much for this book. It's amazing. And my son thought it was him. And that's what keeps us reading it every night too, you know, and here he is getting this wonderful lesson. And so I just thought like, how amazing is it that we can live in 2022, 2023 is right upon us. And we still don't have the representation that maybe speaks to us, even though there are a plethora of options out there. We still don't realize how much our stories are not told that much or how much we don't see ourselves. So anyway, yeah. So it's hard because I feel like at this point in my life, I feel like what representation did I have other than like Connie Chung, Christy Yamaguchi? I mean, that's kind of where I draw the line. That's where I blank out after that. I'm thinking, I don't remember. I really appreciate you saying that because I think about that in that same way, right? Like who were those people when we were growing up? And even now looking at my black, Japanese and white sons, I'm like, 
we still aren't seeing like you guys in those books, you know, but we try. It is so tricky. And I think one of the books that was great for us was The Day You Began, because they also talk about there's a very specific scene where a kid is trying to opening their lunch and people are kind of like, what's that? And so I use that and work with racial justice and kids to be like, hey, because even, you know, when you were talking about opening kimchi you know, bringing kimchi to the newsroom, there were times as an adult, as an attorney, where people told me like, oh, that smells or something when and I was like, we are in our like 20s and 30s now, like, but you can see the through line, right? Like, if you don't have these conversations early on, that they and all of those have stuck with me, you know, over time, because I was like, I can't believe, can't believe we're still having this conversation. Like, I like, we need to be focusing on what we're doing, but we're still working on this in group, out group. Like, uh, do people make that comment if it's egg salad, which also stinks, folks, or like if it's sauerkraut, which smells right? Like, I'm curious, I've never eaten those things in public, but I'm really curious if people who eat those regularly, which also smell, are getting that, or if it's just something that's more ethnic food that's like Asian. You know, well, I will say I have been guilty of all these things, you know, (laughs) I mean, as well. So that's why I'm trying to get better, you know, because I'm thinking, oh gosh, how many times did I make fun of someone for having lutefisk? I mean, so when I lived in Wisconsin, it's a very Nordic area. And I didn't really realize that until I moved there. And people would bring in lutefisk every now and then, or like a cannibal sandwich. It's just raw meat and onions. It's really like, okay, well, all right. Just, yeah. Oh, wow. So the name is actually very, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then when I lived in North Carolina, I never had chitlins, but then we did a Duke badgers kind of like bet with like one of the stations and the badgers lost. So we had to eat chitlins and I totally yucked it. I mean, it was like, and now I'm embarrassed. I'm like, please don't anyone ever find that video. Cause I was like, this is disgusting. But I mean, I was, you know, it just tasted like poop to me. Like it really did. And I was like, oh wow, it's a very strong smell. Now, had I had it fresh and like, you know, fried or whatever, maybe a different story, but it was like sent to me. So like, I don't know how long it was in the air, but also, you know, in Wisconsin, you have stinky cheese. You've got like really, really, you know, blue cheese. And there aren't very many places that actually make blue cheese in Wisconsin. So I realized that I have participated in yucking other people's yums and I'm very ashamed, but this is life, right? So, I mean, I want to do better and I never want to, I will never, I swear on my life, will never yuck chitlins again. I will Totally. (laughs) I will, you know, I will never yuck lutefisk again. But like, that's a real experience, you know, so you so I have to admit that I have been guilty of things, too. I'm not perfect. And I know better, you know, so but yeah, I mean, we all made fun of those, too. (laughs) You know, people were making fun of other my kimchi, but we also made fun of the other things that were coming into our newsroom. So yeah, I guess I shouldn't be laughing about that. But yeah, just awkward situations in general. So I will say, yeah, people, I think if it smells, people will tell you that, but I think people will be better at it in the future. I hope so too, right? And I think that's important that this is like a journey, right? This isn't like we're just going to be perfect and say the right thing and do the right thing. But as we know better, we do better. And also yuck someone's yum is such a big phrase in our house that now my kids say it to each other, like don't yuck my yum. Yeah, which I was like, whoa. So they've taken it, you know, out of me saying it to saying it to each other, they're 10 and eight. So it's taken some years, but they will. So I love that hopefully this is the message that we are sending this generation, right? That they will. I think they do because my son has like seaweed packs that he takes everywhere. And so a lot of his friends who are three and four, you know, if we go to the park, they want to try it. And almost always the kids are like, 
this is different. I don't know if I like this because they are expecting something else. But I'm always like excited when like one kid like really loves it. But I do think kids are getting so much better because I think adults are getting so much better. Agreed. Agreed. And I would love to stay focused on the food, but I don't want this conversation to end without pivoting for a moment because literally I'm sure we could talk about food all day. But, you know, and we've touched on this a little bit, but you have wonderful book lists that you have curated on the Very Asian Foundation as a resource for folks to really center and normalize Asians and Americans of Asian descent. And that really resonated with us because we love books almost as much as we love food. So I would love to sort of ask a two-part question here. First, why was it important to you? And I feel like we've kind of discussed this a little bit, but why was it important for you to include these book lists with the Very Asian Foundation. And the second part of this is on a broader level, you know, we've seen all these discussions around school boards in this country sort of limiting access to kids of the real history of like our country, which includes the real history of Asians in this country. So would love to hear, you know, your thoughts around that or what you would say when people say, we don't really need to teach that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. How much time do you have? I feel like I've already been so windy. I am so sorry. So when I went viral back in January, we actually did a student panel. And this was from a teacher friend of mine who was like, will you do the student panel? Because I lead this Asian American civic scholars group. And so these are high schoolers all across St. Louis. And then they also convened this panel with like students from Make Us Visible New Jersey, who those students were part of the passage of the Asian American Pacific Islander curriculum in New Jersey. And then we had Dear Asian American Youth from California. And we were doing this panel in January. And I think I just, I think the Ellen episode just aired. And so they were talking about in 2021, so like six months, you know, seven months prior, in May during our Heritage Month, they had asked for Asian American books. They created this book list and they sent it out to a bunch of schools in St. Louis. I think it was like 10 to 12. And they said, will you please buy some books for our Heritage Month? And all the schools ignored them. And so they were talking about how, And I don't know if the schools were malicious. I mean, they could have just, you know, their students were not going to mess with this or were busy. I mean, I don't ever want to throw schools under the bus. But, you know, they felt so bad about that because they were invisible in the place that the one place really that they needed to be seen, you know, in schools. And then they would go to their grocery store or a restaurant or their family business and be hyper visible in the community. So people would be like, you're the reason we've got Kung flu, you're the reason we've got China virus, go back to your country, you know, all these things. And sometimes these interactions would be very scary for these kids. And um, they were just talking about this dual re- existence of like being invisible and hypervisible. And then we started having this really big conversation about mental health and how a lot of people felt like they weren't getting the mental health resources that they needed during the pandemic, that they weren't getting, you know, even seen in the pandemic. And all this stuff was happening to them. And then on a side chat, some of the students talked about they or their friends made suicide plans. And so it just got really heavy. And, you know, when students tell you that they or their friends have made suicide plans, like, what are you doing? You have to respond to that. And basically, I said, you know, it's going to take us a while to figure out some mental health resources in schools and for teens. But like, I feel like the book list is a very easy lift. Like we can do this so that you can feel seen in your schools. Mm -hmm. And so I said, please give me your book list. And then I realized 
what am I doing? I am not an expert. So I went to National Scholars. And this one National Scholar is amazing. Her name is Sarah Park Dolan, if you ever get a chance to follow her. And she convened six other National Scholars, so people with PhDs in youth literature. And then they all together worked with the with Apollo, which is the Asian Pacific American Librarians Association, the Asian Authors Alliance, a nonprofit called We Need Diverse Books. And basically, we came up with this May book project, and it's a list of 200-ish books from picture books to adult crossover. And so it's a free resource for any library, community library, school library, whatever. And then if you're an at-need library, that's where the Very Asian Foundation comes in because we will pay for those books to get into your schools or to your libraries, I should say. And so we've just been fundraising this whole time. And we're actually doing our first book drop in November. So it's right around the corner, which is exciting. And we've had a lot of great corporate sponsors. Our premier sponsor is a corporation or a company called Asutra, which is a self-care brand that's sold in Target, run by a woman named Stephanie Morimoto, and her partner is Venus Williams. And so they gave us a lot of money to buy thousands of books across schools, which I'm just so thrilled about. But we have a lot of other corporate sponsors too. But I'm just really proud of it because in Missouri... School boards are, when we're talking about school boards, school boards are very contentious and it's hard to talk about diversity. A lot of people confuse diversity with critical race theory and history and all these things. And I am proud to say that when we pitched this to the state librarian, she was like, I love it. I will give this list to every library district in the state of Missouri. And so I think what we did well, maybe, and maybe because we're journalists founded, (laughs) that I'm always like, listen, I don't need to like make every school buy every single book. You have a choice to participate. And so out of 200 books, you can pick some, (laughs) you know, and then also with the Apollo group, the librarians group, they have a rubric. So they have an academic approach on how to build a more inclusive library. So it's like, look at your collection. Is it all folklore? Because people need to see themselves in real settings. Or do you have any illustrations with slanted eyes? Because those need to go. And I should say, it's a guideline. It's not like a rule. But I mean, it's an academic approach to doing things more inclusively. And so I'm really proud of that group and really proud of our scholars and really just proud to be a part of that. But in terms of history and all these things, I feel like history is just a part of truth, you know? So if we're coming at things from a truth-seeking perspective, then I think we need to be honest about our successes and our failures in our past. And I don't know why people are offended by it at all, because unless you did it, Like, unless you were a part of like something, I just say, teach it, you know, um, because we'll be better off for it. One quick example. In St. Louis, we had a Chinatown that existed in the 1860s or 1870s until the 1960s. So almost 100 years old. And it was blighted and destroyed for progress, the first Bush Stadium. And there's really no other than oral history, no idea of where these families went. And to me, I think that's such a shame because the trajectory of of Asian Americans in St. Louis changed greatly because of this and also how the city sees Asian Americans in St. Louis has also changed. So to me, it's a shame that like people don't teach that history because if something's been around for 100 years and only a few years after statehood, that means that we've been in Missouri for the whole time, you know? So I think that St. Louis cannot be unique to that. And St. Louis also has some pretty big wins with internment and Washington University. So there are so many positive things to teach as well. 
every state, I guarantee, has history like that. And I think it's important to just say these are not Asian stories. These are American stories. And this is your community. Um, and these are things that need to be taught across the board. Um, and equity in education is a real thing. So anyway, I could go on and on and on and on. But I definitely feel like from a truth-seeking perspective, just tell the truth. I know. I mean, we could obviously talk to you about all of these things and more all day. No, <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like I just sucked out all the air. I'm like, <gasps> no, I I think this has been such a good conversation. And I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything else that we didn't ask that you think is important for our audience to hear? Oh, well, you know, the whole time I was thinking of like, what would I be asked if I was if I could say something to white women, like dear white women, you know, but Really, I don't have anything. <laughs> After all that, I don't have anything. I, I mean, other than just like we are people at the end of the day who just want to bring our full humanity to the spaces, you know, and to me, it seems like we all have such different and unique stories that are also very Asian American and so many of our stories don't get told. They don't like rise to the top of the Asian diaspora stories that get told. But we are a mix of so many different things. And our kids are even more diverse than us. And so I just feel like what does very Asian mean to me? It just means being yourself and telling your actual story, you know, and having it recognized as a as a community story. You know, I just don't think like, oh, these are Asian American stories that belong in this little Asian American corner. These are our stories that we share as a community. I appreciate that. Well, on that note, where else can people find your work if they want to follow you after this? Mm, mostly social. Or if you're, you know, if you want to watch our newscast, <laughs> I'm on ksdk.com or the Very Asian Foundation or Michelle Lee TV on social. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to dearwhitewomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>